Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for listening. My name is Daniel Strain, and my co-hosts are on leave today, so it's just going to be you and me. Our topic today is the eyes of compassion. Now, I like to uh, emphasize compassion in a lot of what we do. I, I know that uh, many may know this already, but uh, the motto of the Spiritual Naturalist Society is happiness through reason, compassion, and practice. Well, the reason that's our motto is because, uh, you know, obviously those are the things that we talk about and write about and publish on here at the Society. Um, but there's also an element to this that um, isn't really obvious in that motto, and that is that these three things, reason, compassion, and practice, are integrated. Um, they're not just three things that we like in a list. Um, I've written about before um, how compassion should be the foundation of our practice. I kind of look at it like compassion provides the the course and reason is the plotting of the course and then practice is the actual navigation of the course. Um, so today we're going to be talking about compassion and what that means and how it's integrated with practice. So um, by, cash, by compassion, I mean uh, something like universal loving kindness. Um, sometimes Buddhist translations will refer to that. Metta is another word they use. Um, the ancient Greeks used the word agape, which is basically an unconditional love, um, a godly love for those who, uh, you know, are theists. And um, so this kind of love is not possessive. It's not uh, based on greed or um, some kind of re reciprocity. You know, like I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, or a social contract, or anything like that. It's a deep kind of uh, abiding, um, selfless love for others. And so we might ask, why is this a part of our practice? Why is this not only a part of our practice, but the foundation of it? Um, a few years ago, Robert Axelrod wrote a book called The Evolution of Cooperation. And in that book, uh, Robert Axelrod is a political scientist, um, but he does a lot of work in the area of complexity, complexity science or complex systems theory. Um, it was when I first started reading about complexity science that, uh, that I heard of Axelrod. His book, uh, The Evolution of Cooperation, uh, talks about the kinds of traits and behaviors that we see in human beings 
and how they might have arisen through evolution, um, one of the things that he does is uh, creates a computer simulation. And in this computer simulation, he um, has a number of units, for lack of a better word, entities, that interact with one another in a uh, uh, simulation of uh, moral dilemma. And uh, as they interact, they try out different strategies for how they're going to behave. They're behavioral rules. And it was really uh, incredible to, to learn that uh, many of the traits that we see in ourselves are what rose to the top of the strategy. Um, they're the things that got selected for as being the most successful. Well, it wasn't uh, ruthlessness. It wasn't overt hostility and these interactions. Um, there was some action of defense and some reaction against betrayal, but there was also uh, forgiveness was an important component of the behavioral algorithm that evolved in this computer simulation. And so cooperation uh, rose to the top. It was the uh, the winner, the survival winner. Um, because that kind of cooperation um, is what helps our species to survive. And so it makes sense that the um, impulses within us of empathy and uh, cooperation are part of our nature as human beings, that part of our natural design. And so when we talk about a practice, a spiritual practice, we're talking about finding the ways to live that create flourishing. And you can't really do that without taking into account the nature of a human being. So what was interesting about that, too, is, is this concept of forgiveness. Um, specifically, that means compassion toward those who do not deserve it. Um, you might use the word mercy. Well, that's, that's what mercy is. It's compassion toward those who do not deserve it. So... Um, The idea of quid pro quo, um, I'll do this for you if you do it for me, is not going to work. Or if you betray me, I'm going to betray you. If you do evil to me, I'm going to do evil to you. Um, the reason is because as we interact with each other, inevitably somebody's going to mess up. <laughs> somebody's going to do something they shouldn't do. Or they're going to falter, or there's just going to be a miscommunication. And uh, eventually, something rotten is going to happen somewhere. And so if their system is completely quid pro quo, then what happens is a degradation in the back and forth over time. And this degradation uh, means an escalation of hostilities, 
and a degradation of compassion. And it's just going to end up in this downward spiral. And there's no way out of that downward spiral unless somebody breaks away and says, I'm going to forgive even though you don't deserve it. I'm going to be compassionate even though you're not compassionate to me. Without those kinds of detours, uh, <laughs> there's really no way to maintain a, uh, any kind of flourishing interactions with one another. So I found that, that this whole aspect of compassion, um, how it comes out of reason, and uh, it is because of reason that compassion makes sense. There's this logic to it, this, this almost a mathematics to it. But, you know, to say that intellectually is one thing, and to, to really be that way is, is quite another. Um, people talk about forgiveness a lot, and it's really hard sometimes for people to forgive, especially when the person that we might forgive is not repentant or we don't think they're sincere in their repentance or their apology. Or maybe they apologize, but we think that the offense is so great that it's unforgivable. But I think an important part of this whole idea of compassion as part of our practice is that it's not just about um, the mathematics of human interactions. It's not just about cause and effect of interrelationships and the results of those interactions. Uh, in other words, it's not about just externals, external circumstances or results. It's also very, very much about our internal disposition, what goes on inside. So, uh, because it is about what's going on inside, that also means that forgiveness uh, doesn't mean that we're inactive or passive against people who are doing wrong to us or others. It doesn't mean that we make ourselves into suckers or, or uh, you know, don't do anything to, to protect ourselves from people who would do harm. No, the action and the internal disposition of forgiveness are two different things. What's important is that we don't allow hatred and uh, bitterness and uh, negativity to overcome us, to, to consume us internally. Because then it wouldn't even matter if we went to the person and said, I forgive you. And then we go off and we're grumbling and grumbling. We haven't really gained anything by doing that. So in our spiritual practice, the subjective, again, matters. How we feel matters. What goes on internally in our heart, in our minds matters. And that's where... Uh, the importance of forgiveness and the importance of compassion really play a role. So 
you know, we're talking about with compassion, we're talking about empathy. And um, when we talk about the internal, the feelings. And uh, there's a there's a professor from Yale who recently wrote uh, a book called Against Empathy, the Case for Rational Compassion. And uh, there's been some articles about him recently and in his uh, his argument. He says that empathy is bad. It's actually a, a negative thing and that we should instead opt for a rational compassion. And the reason he, he says that empathy is, is no good is because uh, empathy is this uh, emotional feeling that you get in relationship to someone else. It, and you get your empathy triggered and you feel sorry for someone. But he says that that's, that kind of emotionalism is... Uh, has a lot of pitfalls to it. Um, he says that, you know, it can be unbalanced. It can be over-exaggerated in some cases and under-exaggerated in others. It's kind of unpredictable and not very rational in the way that it uh, plays out. It uh, is biased toward people that we tend to feel more sympathy for, people close to us or people more like us. Um, and so he says that that's not a great thing. That's not a great basis to be acting on. Instead, we want to look at uh, rational compassion. Well, those are, uh, I'm sympathetic to those arguments. I think those are definitely pitfalls. But I wouldn't go so far to say that empathy is bad. In fact, I kind of suspect that maybe uh, Paul Bloom chose that way of phrasing things because it grabs headlines. It, it sells books more. What? There's somebody saying that empathy is bad? I got to check this out. You know, it's, 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 it's clever, but I, I don't, I don't think, uh, I think it's a little bit of hyperbole to say that empathy is therefore bad. You know, empathy can be a an impetus that gets us going, that that starts the uh, <laughs> starts the concern for others, forms a seed. It gets us gets us starting to think along those lines, and then we can use our rational compassion to expand out from there. Um, I think it can help to reinforce it. I do think we have to look out for those pitfalls, though, of bias and the kind of unstable, ir sometimes irrational uh, reactions that we have emotionally. But this conundrum between empathy and rational compassion, I, I think uh, it's much ado about nothing, really, because the real answer to that conundrum reveals itself when we take a certain approach. And that is that approach is one of uh, setting aside distinction between which person in a scenario is ourselves and which is someone else. So let me say that again: the um, the conundrum between empathy and rational compassion reveals itself. The answer to that reveals itself when we set aside distinctions between self and others. So let me unpack that and try to explain a little bit more what I mean by that.
um, the Stoics, I often talk about Stoicism, the Stoics uh, had this concept called appropriation. Yeah, I don't really care for that translation. Appropriation sounds like you're taking something over. Um, I think a better ex uh, translation might be something like expansion. And what it's referring to specifically is expansion of the ego or your sense of self appropriating other things beyond just yourself. So the way they would uh, characterize this is uh, imagine a series of concentric rings. And in that inner circle is the self, is yourself. Um, in the ring just around that is your um, family, loved ones. The ring around that are friends and associates. The ring around that are acquaintances. And then it goes further and further out. And finally, in the outer rings, you've got enemies, things like that. Now, the idea of uh, this expansion or appropriation is that we can, over the time, through practice, begin to shift our inherent concept of self to be larger and larger and larger, expand to include others, so that we actually feel and respond to the needs of others as we would for ourselves so they're like in the same boat you know the same thing and i don't just mean an intellectual uh, agreement with that principle as an abstract i mean an actual shifting of our kind of instinctive responses i guess they're not instinctive but deeply seated responses uh, a shifting of our kind of natural uh, way of looking at things or the natural way of weighing up things and making decisions. And so our very character starts to shift over time with these certain practices. Um, and so our sense of self grows further and further and further. I like to point out that, uh, you know, since I'm also very interested in Buddhist philosophy, now, the Buddhists have a concept called no-self. So just a few seconds ago, I was talking about the self. And here in Buddhism, they say there's no such thing as the self, that the self is a, a delusion of sorts because it's comprised of several aggregates, things like memories, sensations, feelings. There's no single thing that has any one of those. There's no unchanging, eternal, solid self but it's more of an emergent property, to use a more modern term. And uh, I think both of these are actually correct. In fact, I think that because the self is somewhat arbitrarily defined, because of Buddhist no-self, that is what makes it possible for us to redefine self however we want. That is the door, that is the key that opens the door to... Uh, this stoic practice of expansion. If self was this real solid thing, like when you talk about a rock or a tree, then uh, self would not be something you could just decide to expand to mean other things. Um, so that's, that's kind of the model 
on which some of these practices are based. And uh, if you start to put them into practice, you'll notice the effects on yourself. You'll notice the way that you uh, think and act and feel in response to things. When I was first getting into philosophy, uh, or a little after I first got into philosophy, I, I started learning about Stoicism, Western philosophy. And I had some things going on in my uh, family at the time where I came to learn through those experiences that the Western ideas, the more modern Western ideas I had had about ethics, uh, kind of left me high and dry. When you get into highly complex moral situations, Sometimes you try to use these models of uh, these ethical models or ethical reasoning. And what you find is that real life is a lot messier. You often don't know all the facts. You often don't know all of the results of your different choices that you might make. And so the moral calculus that you would go through to determine, well, this is right and this is wrong and this is the correct response and this is the incorrect response. What you find is that it's almost impossible to make those kinds of hard um, choices based on some kind of strictly rational model like that. And so what I ended up having to do was just kind of fall back on compassion as a Instead of thinking in terms of some sort of uh, equation like this is ethical, therefore that's ethical, a series of premises and conclusions, instead of thinking through it in that sense, I came at it a different way and eventually uh, just kind of came to fall back on this general uh, feeling and attitude of compassion and I said to myself, well, I'm just going to, the situation is too complex and I don't have all the facts. So I'm just going to respond to everything compassionately as a compassionate person would. And I'm not going to worry about who's to blame, who has what duty, who should forgive who, who should be the, the one in the right and the wrong. I'm not going to worry about any of that. I'm just going to act compassionately. And, uh, I think it was around that time when I first started to read about Buddhism, and maybe that influenced me. And so uh, I did that, and it worked. And it worked in a way that was like an epiphany. Uh, it was really amazing to me to see uh, this almost kind of emergent effect of, of just doing what was compassionate and in this kind of greater than the sum of its parts kind of effect it had on things. And so that's when I started to really uh, focus in more on virtue ethics and looking at character and uh, trying to mold myself to be a certain kind of person and and as I started to get more and more into Buddhism, which puts a big emphasis on compassion, loving kindness, of course, uh, I noticed that over time, who I was was changing. The person that I was was changing. Things would come on the news, and uh, 
it would affect me a lot more than it used to affect me. And I started to wonder, well, I thought, you know, Buddhism was supposed to be about less suffering, escaping suffering. But it looks like I'm opening myself up to more suffering because I can feel my heart is, you know, on my shoulder more. I can feel uh, more responsive to these things. And it's, uh, there's some wonderful things about that, but it's also kind of scary and it, it can be painful. Um, so I noticed a change in how sensitive and empathic and uh, uh, compassionate my responses were becoming through these practices. I eventually learned that you have to balance compassion with reason. Um, is said in another way, I asked a, a Buddhist monk about this question about uh, compassion, about how you know, as we raise our compassion, it seems like we're opening ourselves to more suffering. What's the answer to that? And the monk said, well, you have to balance it. You have to balance it with wisdom. And what he meant translating into wisdom uh, was dharma. Um, so basically what he meant was the wisdom that Buddhism teaches of non-attachment. And you get to non-attachment by understanding uh, impermanence and uh, the Diamond Sutra and uh, so on and so forth. I digress though, so I'm going to come back to uh, to compassion. So anyway, uh, my main point is that you can feel yourself over time, who you are as a person, your character, your responses, whatever you want to call it, you can feel that shifting over time as you engage in practice, as you engage in certain specific practices designed for specific things. I'll get into what some of those are in a minute, but um, it's amazingly powerful when you witness this. It's kind of like when you start going to the gym and at first you're just tired and over time you start seeing some tone in your muscles and you start feeling better and you can see the results. It just takes a little time for them to develop and patience and then and uh, diligence. And it's the same thing with spiritual practice. So um, let me get back to this this idea of uh, of the self and others. We talk a lot about enlightenment or raising our consciousness or awareness. Um, but it's not often said of what are we becoming more aware of what are we becoming more conscious and as we become more enlightened what are we becoming enlightened about that part of it's often left unsaid well one of those very important things that I think is part of the process of becoming a more enlightened person uh, lowercase e, not transcending to some kind of uh, superpowers or anything, but becoming a more enlightened person, uh, becoming a more aware, conscious person. One element to that relates directly to compassion. And it's learning to see things in a different way. Um, that's why I called today's program The Eyes of Compassion. So 
Thomas Merton, Christian monk Thomas Merton, said that compassion is the keen awareness of the interconnectedness of all things. And so I want you to set aside for a minute everything you think of when you think of compassion. Think of it as this feeling or this way of being or this set of priorities, this way of acting. Set aside all that for a minute. Just imagine the word compassion is just this placeholder for a concept. And that concept is the complete awareness on a deep, profound, uh, person changing level of interconnectedness and all of the implications of interconnectedness. Now, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, everything's interconnected. I understand that. You know, a bird flies over to a tree and it, uh, you know, knocks a berry off and the berry hits the ground and later it grows into a tree. And, you know, all this, you can intellectually say, yes, I understand interconnectedness. You can imagine in your head a web of interactions um, and how one cause leads to another, to another, to another. But here's the question. Do you really, really look at life and the universe and the world and your life as interconnected? I suspect that if we were to really see interconnectedness intuitively, the way we see much simpler, immediate things, that the implications of interconnectedness would hit us so hard that it would seem like insanity to act otherwise. Um, you know, I'm reminded of that scene in uh, the movie Avatar where... Uh, for those that have seen it, where she says to the main character, uh, we'll see if your insanity can be cured, because uh, she's referring to the earthlings who are destroying the environment there on their planet. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I think it would be, a lot of our actions would seem to us to be more uh, like incomprehensible, just insane if we really had a more intuitive grasp of interconnectedness and how we're all interconnected with one another and all life on earth. And I'm not just talking about environmental issues. I'm talking about how we go through life, how we treat our neighbor, how we treat the people at work. And we would understand that when we do ill to others, that we're hurting ourselves in really subtle and numerous and profound ways. And we would understand how we are um, violating our nature as social animals, as empathic creatures, and damaging our sense of empathy with every ill step we make. 
So this process of expanding the self and, you know, it comes with this slow changing perspective. As, you, as your perspective widens and widens, the natural result is that your sense of self expands. And I, by the way, am by no means there. Uh, you know, we're all learners here at the society, and uh, I'm just sharing what part of it I know. And uh, when we have other guests and people that leave comments on our page, they always leave wonderful things that really just teach me a lot, and, and we all learn from each other. Uh, so I certainly have a long way to go. But once in a while, you can get these glimpses that kind of give you an idea you know, of what we're shooting for here. So the eyes of compassion might be called something like uh, big mind. I think I've heard it called that in a Buddhist context before, big mind. Um, the big picture. And what happens is your sense of your, your perspective starts to shift outside of the ego. And this is the doorway. This is the escape hatch of from the ego because as your as your concerns in the the vantage point from which you start to make decisions starts to shift outside just picture this little dot moving out of your head and up into the sky it starts to shift higher and higher and higher and as that happens your concerns start to broaden and broaden and who you are as a person starts to become more than it was before um, and this shift brings with it a lot of really interesting things that connect to equanimity, peace of mind, flourishing, um, because we start to appreciate the dynamic of the universe and the beauty of the universe, the beauty of the cosmos and how it, all of this interaction and interconnectivity and if we can see that, we start to see how impermanence and the things that our ego doesn't like, death and loss, how those are necessary parts of this whole complex flux that makes everything possible. So I think there's definitely an interconnection between our ability to appreciate interconnectedness escaping our ego, moving to a larger perspective, and peace of mind, flourishing, contentment, equanimity. And compassion is just the natural result of that shift. Now, until we get there, since none of us are fully enlightened, uh, the compassion is sometimes it's, a, it's an external thing. You start with that, you... You go, you know, donate something or you help somebody out or you, you do these kinds of actions that your parents tell you, you know, you need to be nice, you need to do these things. And you go and you do them and then you, you feel something in response to it. And you start to slowly learn what that feels like and what it's really like. And eventually it doesn't even become about getting the good feelings. Um, so experience is part of what shifts our perspectives over time. 
So if, if you're not feeling empathetic and you want to be more empathic and you're not feeling compassion and you want to be more compassionate, just start doing it. Just find an access way to do it. It doesn't have to be anything huge. You don't have to go save the world. But smiling at somebody, you know, uh, holding the door open, you know, little things like that and not just doing it because you're supposed to or you're expected to, but really trying to get yourself to feel that, put yourself in their shoes and playing with it like it's a game, practicing it more. Now, as we um, start to shift our perspective out further and further, um, from self to loved ones to acquaintances to strangers and then eventually we get to enemies that's the toughie right there because it's real difficult to imagine how to be compassionate toward and loving of our enemies because you know in everyday life to have an enemy you probably think that person's pretty evil it's not i'm not just talking about people that annoy you at work or things like that although those would be one of those rings too but even people that we think are really vile um really harmful that really are harmful and do bad things um because the benefits of compassion are internal and they're about our disposition and what kind of person we are and they're not about the attributes of the forgiven of those who would we we would be compassionate toward they're not about who they are it's about who we are and because of that that means that um being able to reach that point where we can have compassion and love for evildoers, wrongdoers, enemies, uh, that's really a, a special point. And all of us have sometimes been able to have little glimpses of it. But sometimes we're, we feel guilty about that because we imagine, wow, if I have compassion for this bad person, then I'm betraying all of the people that that bad person hurt or will hurt. Um that is not really a compatible concern with this kind of perspective that I've been talking about. And the reason is because it's based on the assumption that when we forgive something, someone, that that's a, a gift we're giving to that person. Um, rather, instead, forgiveness is an internal, uh, an internal disposition. Uh, regardless of whether you told the person or not that they're forgiven, if you reach that point in your mind where you have forgiven them, it's that gift to yourself that it's really about. So if you look at it in that way, then it really doesn't make sense to say I'm somehow helping them or enabling them by forgiving them. It's also a very common mistake to think that the kinds of ideas I've been talking about are somehow uh, meaning that we should lay down or be passive or 
inactive against uh, people who are harming others. No, what I'm saying is that we can act against people if we have to, to defend innocent people. We can take all the same actions. We can go to the law. We can fight them. We can do whatever we need to do. But we can do it not from a vantage point of hate, but from a vantage point of, of love for those we're protecting and even love for the, the wrongdoer. Because to allow them to continue doing wrong is a damage to themselves as well. And if you're really having a hard time trying to understand how a person can love someone who did something evil to them or others, then um, I like to use the example of motherly love. Now, not everybody has the... Uh, advantage of having a loving mother but everybody I think understands what the ideal mother is like you know you imagine a mother loving their child no matter what so um, you know imagine a woman has a has a baby loves that baby raises it at one point it's a cute little boy or girl loves them, raises them, teaches them. Then they become a teenager. Maybe they start having some difficulties. They become separated at some point. Maybe once they become an adult, they leave. And then they have many other problems, and they start getting in trouble with the law, and one thing leads to another, and then the next thing they hear, this person has uh, done something really horrible. Maybe they've killed some people or even just really upsetting, vile things. Now, you're that person's close, not just family member, but you're their mother. They're your child that you've known since they were a baby. And you imagine how that lady must feel. Imagine her regret and horror and shame at what has happened to the victims of her son or daughter. And in all of this, you can even imagine the mother being the one to call the police. Um, and yet, through that, even as she's calling the police... She still loves her child. She just really regrets that they turned out that way. There's not only the tragedy of, that the victims are facing, there's also the tragedy of the loss of the kind of person that that child could have been. And in fact, we all suffer that loss. When a person does evil, uh, really heinous acts of evil, We've all um, suffered a tragedy beyond the immediate tragedy. We've also suffered the tragedy of losing a potential person who could have been a good person, who could have done something different with their life. We lost that. That's a loss for all of us. And it's a loss for them. 
And so when you hear these uh, phrases like, um, you wish happiness for your enemies, you wish happiness for all beings, no matter what, unconditionally. Well, what does it mean to wish happiness for somebody? If we really understand happiness, real happiness, then we understand that true happiness comes from uh, being a good person, an enlightened person, an understanding person, and that through greater wisdom, we enjoy true, deep happiness. So when you wish happiness for someone, even a you know bad person, person who's done heinous things, what you're really wishing is that they would turn their life around, that they could be different. You're wishing that, you know, they would be the kind of person that they would have to be in order to be truly happy. And that wishing of that on your part and that love on your part it doesn't prevent you from acting the way you need to do, act to protect yourself or others. But it does allow you to flourish internally. Much, much greater than uh, being consumed by bitterness or hatred or anger. And so then that brings up the final point of, uh, you know, isn't this kind of selfish? Because everything I've been talking about about compassion and about forgiveness and about uh, spiritual practice in general has been the benefit of the practitioner. Makes your life better, makes your your life experience um, have more equanimity, makes you uh, have more peace of mind. And yes, it's true. Um, the Dalai Lama has called this enlightened self-interest. Uh, or enlightened self selfishness, I think is what he called it. Uh, so, you know, there's base selfishness, which is, you know, give me that money, I want all that money. Or the food or whatever it is, power, reputation. But then there's kind of an enlightened selfishness, which is, you know, I realize that if I'm a good person, truly good and truly have these... Uh, intentions of compassion for others that I will have a better life and I don't I don't think there's any uh, moral problem with that at all in fact I think it's part of the really good news about things it didn't have to turn out this way but it actually turned out to where you know uh, that compassion is good for us compassion is good for the compassionate that's that's a great thing and it's a great thing to understand how and why exactly that is so um let me go ahead and just wrap up here and uh you know over the next month until you catch our next episode uh i would just say uh why don't you try to give it a give it a shot just look for opportunities to be compassionate where least expected Anyway, that's been our program today, and thank you for listening. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Jay Forrest is our technical director. 
Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.